Today we're going to talk about a commandment that I bet you've heard, but you may not understand. And the reason this is really important, it's important to understand this, is because if you don't understand this, you run the real risk of kind of playing make-believe in your faith. Now, when my kids were younger, they would do this thing. They would come, they'd get like, we had blocks, you know, and they'd bring blocks up and they'd pretend it was food and like toys and, and like do this pretend meal and they'd come and offer you it and you'd take it and you'd pretend to eat it and it was really cute and everything. But it was make-believe, right? They don't do that anymore. They just eat us out of house and home now. Like, no pretend food for them, right? So, um, but it, it was a substitute for the real. And the reason why this command is so important, and, and I think for you to really tune into what we're saying today, is if you get this commandment wrong, you risk, um, you, you run the risk of playing maple leaf in your faith and consequently missing out on a real relationship, a deep, intimate relationship with God. And our, our guiding value here at Life Community Church is that we exist to move people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the last thing we want you to do is to come to church, even if you come regularly or occasionally, the last thing we would want for you would be to come to church and still and miss out on having a real growing personal relationship with God. And so I, I hope you'll, you'll pay attention to this this morning. Now, before we dive into what we're talking about, let me catch you up real quick because we're in week three of the series. The first week, we, we looked at an event that happened three months before God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the first Passover. And what's really interesting about this is that before God ever got to giving the law, the very first thing he instructs his people as a whole to do is celebrate the Passover, um, commemorate. It's, it's in the time when the 10th plague is coming. And he asked them before he got to, you know, giving them the law or the family rules, he says, I want to be your rescuer. I want to be your savior. I want to be your deliverer, your redeemer. And, and the way that you kind of, kind of um, come into that relationship is simply by trusting me. And I'm going to ask you to do something a little strange but very simple in, in this meal, the Passover meal, as you paint the blood of the Passover lamb on the sides and the top of the door and come under that. And it's going to be a simple expression of your trust in me. And this is so cool because it's so counterintuitive to the way that um, world religions all over the world think about identifying with God because most world religions kind of communicate that to be okay with God or for God to be interested in forming a relationship with, with you and me, we got to first keep the rules. And if we do that just good enough, then God will be interested in us. And, and the message here in the book of Exodus is God said, I want to invite you into relationship. I am your God. I'm inviting you in. You're my people. And the way you get into relationship with me is, is trusting me. And then I'm going to give you the, the family rules, the way that we're going to structure this society because they've been a slave people for hundreds of years. They have no concept of what it means to be a society. I'm going to teach you how to function and how I want you to interact and treat um, other, my other kids, right? And so what we saw the first week, and I think it's so important, we saw that it's always been about responding to God with trust and loyal love. That's, that's been the story all along. 
That's what you see in Abraham. That's what you see in all kinds of people throughout the scriptures is that God initiates a relationship with them and they respond in trust. And because they trust him, um, they're, they're loyal to him and they, and they respond and obey out of loyal love. It's always been about that all the way along. Now, last week, we looked at the first two commandments. And what's interesting is if you were to ask sort of the man on the street, throw a mic in their face, and ask them to name the Ten Commandments, uh, they'd probably start with, don't kill, don't steal. And then after that, it'd start getting a little harder. You know, maybe they get, don't commit adultery, right? And then after that, it's like, oh, gosh, I can't remember. For most people, right? And what we saw, what's interesting is, what we saw last week is before God ever gets to those rules, you know, don't kill, don't steal, those rules about how we're to treat each other, he gave us two very important rules about how we are to recognize and relate to him. Don't have any other gods before me and don't make an image. Or what we saw is, is it's bigger than just, you know, worshiping idols. It was this idea of don't shrink me down or try to make me into something you can control or just another facet in your life or something that you can stick up here on the shelf and think you can come into my presence and interact with me and then come out of my presence and go do your own thing and I don't see and what we saw is the heart of these first two commandments are really that God says, I want to be at the center of your life. I am the center. I'm the creator of everything. And what we saw is, is when, when you base your life or, or allow anything else other than the true center, other than God, to come into the center place of your life, your life starts to go off the rails. And so what we saw last week was this, that your life is designed to be lived with God at the center with the creator of everything at the center. And that's where you find joy, that's where you find peace, that's where you find fulfillment. Now I think it's so significant that God begins with these two commandments first, before he gets all, all the, you know, like, don't kill, don't see, all the, all the things about how we're supposed to treat each other. It's so significant. Because here, here's the, the truth, is if we get these first two commandments right, if we really take hold of it and, 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 and live this out in our lives, all the other commandments, like, you know, don't kill, don't steal, the other things, tend to kind of work themselves out naturally. Because once you've settled in your heart that God is the true God, and he is the center of your life, and his kingdom and his purposes are, are what your life are oriented around, the rest of it just really kind of comes so much easier. And so if you miss the first two weeks, I encourage you to go back, you know, to our podcast or go back online and listen now, today we're going to look at a commandment that you might remember from childhood and one that is very often misunderstood. It's the third commandment. And I'm going to start out, and there's some participation this morning, so I'm going to start out by putting it up on the screen, and I want to see if you can finish the sentence. So don't be shy. Let's see. Here we go. Thou shalt not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord thy God... Okay, well, let's do it one more time. You're a little, you know, quiet, but you got it. So one more time. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God. Very good. Okay. Now this is Exodus 27. Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. From the, from the King James Version, which is probably the version you learned it in as a child, right? And as a kid, you were taught a very specific application of this that I'm guessing is what most people still think about now when you think about this commandment. And that is basically this. When you get mad, don't shout out God's name. 
And don't yell out his son's name either. And don't curse or damn something by attaching God's name to it. Anybody learned that application when you were a kid? Yeah. For, for many, and, and for many, that's like exactly what we think of when we think of this command. That's the primary thing that comes to our mind. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do, do you think that the intent of the third commandment is really that? I mean, remember, this is on the list before do, don't murder. It's kind of a big deal one. This is, this is on the list before that, right? Do you think that God is simply saying that, you know, thou shalt not, when thou hittest thy thumb with a hammer, shout out my name. Thou shalt not, when thy 16-year-old driveth the car into the garage door, shout out my name. Thou shalt not, when thy toddler attempts to flush their diaper or their toy dinosaur, true story, <clears throat> couple hundred dollars and new toilet later. Thou shalt not, right? Call out my name. Is that like the heart of this? Is that the, the main point of this? Is, is there more to it? Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't think it's okay when God use, or when people use the name of God or Jesus in, in anger. It's totally disrespectful. It's totally not honoring. I think there's definitely an application you know, the one we learned as a kid that ties into this commandment. I mean, I personally cringe when people use the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as a swear word. And I'm sure a lot of you do, too, right? It's not okay. Have you ever thought, isn't it interesting that it's always Jesus? It's never like Buddha, Muhammad, you know, Hare Krishna. No, no, no. Like, come on, give Jesus a break. Use somebody else for a while, right? It's, it's always Jesus. I'm, I'm just saying, if you want to be the weird person at work, like the weird Christian, <clears throat> you know, when somebody like yells out Jesus Christ and, you know, in, in that way, um, you can just like look over and go, loves you. <laughs> or if you want to make them really uncomfortable, died for you. Uh, that will make you the weird Christian at work. Um, I don't know if that's such a great idea. But they'll probably definitely stop saying it around you. I'm just saying that. So, you know, yelling out God's name when you're angry, that's bad. It is, it is good to have respect and to honor the name of God. But I don't think the application we all learned as kids in any way carries the full weight of this commandment. And I think really the, the version we, we teach out of normally here, the New International, um, begins to closer communicate the, the heart of the deeper meaning of this commandment in a way we can understand. Because we don't really use the phrase in vain, right? We, that, that's not something that you've probably used in the last couple weeks in normal conversation, right? And so Exodus 27 in the NIV says this, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And now, God, just so you understand how seriously God takes this, he adds this warning, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And we'll talk a little bit more um, later about the consequences, about what happens inside of us and what happens to us when we violate or when we violate this command. We'll talk about that a little while later. 
But he says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. And when you look at, you know, in the King James, the word take, or in the, um, in the NIV, the word misuse, it comes from the Hebrew root word uh, that's nasah. And it means to bear, like bearing or lifting up a standard, you know. And if you've seen like, uh, you know, one of these old movies, uh, you know, Braveheart or something, where they go into battle and they carry the standard, the flag, and they bear the flag, which is, you know, represents the, the authority of the king usually, right? And they bear that before them into the battle. That's kind of the connotation here. And the idea of in vain is, is really um, b- making something, um, it's, it's being useless or having no consequences. So yes, this command includes the idea of speech that disrespects God or makes his name an object of contempt, but it's so much bigger than that. The idea is really all about representing him or imaging him. You remember that goes all the way back to creation, right? Where he said, let's make mankind in our image, male and female, he created them in God's image, right? And as as humankind, we are to be image bearers of God, but we all know humankind fell. And so as God raises up this new people that is going to be unique in the world. They are, a few chapters back, he calls them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation or set apart a kingdom of priests. Their, one of their primary jobs is to communicate to the world and to express and image God to the world, to make God look good to the, to the world, right? And the heart of this command, I think if you want to um, express it The heart of this is really this, I believe. It's don't use God's name in a way that misrepresents him. Don't use God's name in a way that misrepresents him. Or another way of saying that could be don't associate the name of God with anything it should not be associated with. In Leviticus 19, God says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. Don't associate my name with falsehood. Don't ever associate my name with falsehood, right? That is what God's saying. You could say, you could express this like this. Don't use God's name as a means to accomplish your agenda or leverage God in order to get your way in something that God would not support, right? Don't put the stamp or seal of God's name or approval on something that God does not condone or approve of. These would all be ways to think about what God's saying here about this commandment. In fact, let me just identify this. I had a, or illustrate this. I had a, a neighbor, and uh, I was talking to him one day, and he's like, man, I just, I got this debit card, and somehow the number got out, and my identity got stolen. These people have been using my card to buy all these things online. I like look at my statement. What's going on? There's no money in the bank, Right. He got his identity got stolen, and somebody used his name to go purchase a bunch of stuff that he never authorized, that he never ordered. Took his identity essentially, misused his name. Um, when I was in high school, uh, we we had this like real practical joke kind of culture going in our youth group, and if you know my youth pastor, don't tell him because I still haven't confessed this one. <clears throat> But when I was in youth group, my youth pastor went on a, uh, 
he went on a uh, vacation with his family. And so we got this fun idea. And um, my friend and I, we, this was back before like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or any of this, right? You had to actually call the newspaper and put a classified ad in. And so we said, wouldn't it be funny? He had this pretty nice house right up here in the Redlands. And uh, we said, let's, let's put his house, an ad for his house in the paper. So we did at like a ridiculously low price, listed his phone number right on there, and, and then we billed the ad to him, too. I should probably send him a, like an anonymous money order or something for like 20 bucks, you know, plus interest. It's probably like $100 now. Um, no, so, <laughs> so we were just thinking, like laughing about him getting back and having like 100 messages on his answering machine. Hey, I want to come look at your house, so... Anyway, what did we do? Essentially, we took his name in vain, right? We did something under the auspices of his name that we weren't authorized to do, right? No ideas, youth, in the, in the, in the uh, place. Now, when I was in Thailand doing missions work, I bought a Rolex watch for $12. I did. It looked great. Didn't keep time, but it looked great. What, what, what's going on there? It was a counterfeit. It was something being done. It was taking that name in vain, right? I think this really, as you start to understand this, this really begins to get to the weight that this commandment carries. God says, I don't want you to misuse my name in order to do things that I would have nothing to do with. I don't want you to use religion or your connection to me as a tool to do things that benefit you while mistreating other people. I want you to really live out your purpose as being a kingdom of priests and to show the goodness of God to the nations. You're my people. And when it comes to the way you represent or image me, don't do it in such a way that it gives me a bad name. The people look at me and go, oh, it's just like all the other nations. Um, if you're going to be a jerk, don't do it when you're wearing the company uniform, right? Uh, I have another one for you. Uh, this is just good pastoral advice. This is a freebie. If you're going to drive like an idiot and cut people off, or, or not that you would do this, but give people the international peace sign... Don't do it with a Jesus bumper sticker on. Yeah, if you, if you got to be, you, you know, if you got to do that, just take off all the Jesus stuff off your car, okay? Because why? Because it's giving someone, it's giving Jesus a bad name, right? That's the idea. Now, why did God put this commandment right at the top? Number three, like, you know, before don't kill. I think it was because he knew people's hearts. And he knew that, that religious people always try to find loopholes to get around the very laws that God creates and to leverage their supposed connection to God for their own purposes or for their own power or for their own prestige or enrichment. And he knew, hey, they're going to set up religious systems in order to give themselves loopholes to justify doing whatever they want to do and using my name to do it. And so 
It's interesting, as you look at this commandment, the third commandment, um, kind of the way we grew up with the application as the primary application as a kid is very similar, actually, to the way the Jewish people over the next thousand or so years, you know, before Jesus came, they kind of went down the same path when it came to applying this commandment. They had an incredible reverence for the actual name of God. In fact, in their communities, they had highly educated men in the, in the religious communities who would carefully copy down the text of the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, meticulously, letter by letter. Jesus said not a jot or a tittle, like punctuation marks, would pass from the law. In fact, it's interesting because as you look at these texts, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were buried sometime around the time of Jesus in this community called Qumran. We found them in the 60s. And when they compared that to the ancient copies of the text that we had from much further back in history, the, the variation was just minuscule, tiny. I mean, nothing's, nothing that was substantial was all like little punctuation and different things like that. It was incredibly accurate, and that's how detailed they were. And these guys, uh, which really means, um, that's one of the reasons why I think you can really trust the text that we have in the Scriptures. Now, they, would, they reverenced the actual name of God, Yahweh, where we would pronounce Yahweh or Yehovah, to the extent that as they were copying down the Scriptures, they'd have you know, a, and a feather, a quill, you know, an ink, and as they would write that, they'd have a separate one just to write God's name. And so if they were writing Psalm 23, you know, the, the they would write the, and then um, they would switch pens, right, and write Lord, put the pen down, switch pens, is my shepherd, right? That's how much reverence they had. In fact, as history progressed, they actually thought, hey, well, if we don't pronounce the name of God, we won't take it in vain, and so they actually quit speaking out the actual name of God and replaced it with other names that are supposed to represent the name of God. In fact, today, even today in Orthodox Jewish communities, as, uh, when somebody references the name of God, they reference it as Hashem or the name. So that's, um, that's how much they reverenced it. In fact, some of you maybe grew up in church families that did something similar to this. You couldn't say gosh or geez. Anybody? Yeah, a couple of you. You're like, wow, that's weird. You're weird, right? Why? Because it was too close to saying God, right? Or Jesus. And so that was kind of the same idea. They went down with this commandment. And by the time that Jesus came onto the scene, about 1,400 years after these commandments were given, the, the religious leaders had really lost sight of the deeper meaning of what was behind this, the, the heart of this commandment. And they became so focused on minutia and traditions and you know the literal name of God and avoiding pronouncing that, that they completely lost sight of you know, much of the heart of this commandment. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, we see he's always rebuking the religious leaders. And one of the main things he's rebuking them for, I mean, if you read through the Gospels, the four accounts of, of Jesus that we have in the Scriptures, the primary people he rebukes are the religious leaders. And he, he, one of the things that he, he dislikes the most are when they create loopholes in the law to justify the things that they want to do while ignoring God's commands. In fact, to illustrate this, in John, this is one of the times that we see Jesus just 
This is Jesus. Check this out. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. Now, for people in this culture, you know, they would come and they would offer a sacrifice for, for those that could afford it, a lamb, and for those that uh, couldn't afford it, just a couple, you know, a pair of doves, and they'd offer that. And this was the system that God had sent up temporarily until the ultimate sacrifice, which we know is Jesus, came, that they would have an assurance that, okay, I'm okay with God. My sins are temporarily, my sins are covered, at least for this year, for the past year, now I'm good. And what the, what the religious leaders did is they set up this whole money exchange system. And so when the people would come into the temple, they were charging people exorbitant rates to exchange this money and buy these animals because people would have to come from out of town. And they were ripping people off in the name of God. People, you know, just assume this must be God's deal because they're in the temple. This must be what God was like. And Jesus is angry about this. This ticks him off. He had a strong opinion about this. Check out what he does. Verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords. You just see Jesus making this whip? This is Jesus. And drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is not a gentle, peaceful scene. This Jesus makes me a little uncomfortable. This is Jesus. You remember the WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? Well, this is within the realm of possibility. <laughs> they were violating the commandment of God. It's such a dramatic event that all four of the gospel writers include it. In fact, Matthew says this, this is what Jesus said as he did this. In Matthew 21, it says, It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. They were misusing, they were violating the third commandment. They were doing something, putting God's stamp of approval on something that God would never approve of, and doing it in his name, and giving him a bad name through this. Now, another time Jesus strongly rebuked the religious leaders is in Mark 7. And this is what he says to him. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. They set aside God's command for their own little rules that they like to set up. They found loopholes to do what they want, right? You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. So Jesus is saying, you, guys, you, you have this tradition. You set up a loophole. This is the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And part of that, especially in a society like this where you know, there's no retirement, there's no social security, and part of the reason they had lots of kids was you needed somebody to take care of you when you got older, right? 
And so what, what the religious leaders set up, the system called Corbin, where people could take all of their wealth, all of their possessions, and essentially say, come to the temple, do a little ritual, and say, we're devoting this to God, and God, we're going to store this for you. And if you ever need it, come ask for it. And in doing that, then when their parents were old and destitute and needed help, they could go, ah, I'm so sorry, I, I devoted all this stuff to God. You wouldn't. I just can't help. And this ticked Jesus off. This ticked God off, right? He says, thus, verse 13, you nullify. You supersede or you, you deny what God clearly taught. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. In other words, you religious leaders have gotten really good at building yourselves these little loopholes in order to justify your behavior, in order to justify what you want to do, in order to justify mistreating other people. And I think these two accounts really get to the heart of the third commandment about not misusing God's name, about justifying or attaching a, a spiritual-sounding thing in God's name in order to do things that we want to do that God would not approve of. And as we know, it wasn't just the Pharisees that did this in the course of history, was it? There's countless examples throughout history. In the Middle Ages, the Europeans invaded Jerusalem and slaughtered tens of thousands of Arabs. It's the Crusades, right? Crusades went on for, for 200 years. And they did this in the banner of God's name, uh, some estimate that 1.7 million died. In the time of the Reformation, the, the church set up a system of indulgences where people were scared about how do we, how do we know we're okay with God? How do we escape you know, wrath and purgatory? And they set up a system where you could come and you could pay a fee and you could buy an indulgence and then you had forgiveness. You got to get out of jail free card. And they took advantage of poor people, people who are already struggling to survive, but because of this fear, man, you better do this. This is one of the things that launched the Protestant Reformation because people stood up. They, they burned people at the stake for trying to bring the scriptures to people. <laughs> this is stuff in, in history, right? In the 1800s in our country, Preachers, there were preachers in the South that stood up and actually twisted the scriptures to support slavery and to somehow say that if you owned slaves, you were being more faithful to scripture. I don't think so, right? Now, a few weeks back, we took a few minutes, we talked about some of the modern ideas that are swirling around in our, in our country today that have been really highlighted, you know, in the BLM organization and different things like that. And, and I highlighted, you can go back and listen to it, it was the last talk we did in Exodus before we took a two-week break and did Philemon. We talked about how this nation was not founded on slavery. That's a false notion. This nation actually led the way. So I don't want to go back to that today. But this is part of our history. 1800s, preachers stood up. They usually twisted the scripture to support slavery. Um, in more recent times, you have televangelists. Now, there's some good ones out there, aren't there? There's some good ones. In fact, in this era, lots of us are televangelists, right? 
I see you all there online. We're glad you're with us. So if you'll just send in your three payments to $29.95. If you're just joining us, this is your first time. That's not how we roll around here. But televangelists, they, they really, literally, um, in a lot of circles, this idea of prosperity gospel that has been twisted, not all of it, not all the people, but some people have really twisted it. In fact, one famous one, Jim Baker, wrote a book from prison, I Was Wrong, talking about a lot of this stuff. And, and here, this idea gets twisted that somehow you can put God in your debt, you can somehow obligate God to do something if you can just work up enough faith, or if you give God one, he's obligated to give you 10 back. And guess what? Um, the problem with that is not just theology and scripture that does not support it, and things like Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. It's the history of the church the last 2,000 years. Guess what? That doesn't match the history of God's people ever. And so people twist Scripture in order to enrich themselves oftentimes. In fact, I bet many of you have some kind of story in your past of a hurt from church people who claimed God was behind their lousy treatment of you. I bet if we went around the room, there'd be some stories in here. Now, it's easy to identify this out there, right? Crusaders, easy target. Slave traders, televangelists. But it's easy to think about them and not think about ourselves in this whole scenario, right? And I think this actually gets really personal for us. And as we, as we move towards closing today, I want to share how I think this gets personal with us. There's a, a phrase I learned in Youth with a Mission, um, when I was working with Youth for the Mission, and it stuck with me. I learned it in my DTS years ago. And that phrase is this, to justify is just a lie. Could, let's repeat that out loud. To justify is just a lie. And I think Christians today, followers of Jesus today, do this all the time, that we justify things and we, we somehow put God's stamp of approval on it or somehow say that God is okay with it and we use it to justify things that God would not want in our lives. And so I have three major ways that I think we justify things today, like the Pharisees justified things. One of them is this. It's, it's the, the God told me loophole. God told me. And here's the thing. We believe God speaks. God communicates. God, God speaks to his children. He gives us guidance and direction when we're facing situations. Sometimes he, he prompts us, you know, to go pray for somebody. And it's like, wow, that was an amazing God moment. That was definitely God, right? But somehow, sometimes this gets twisted. And I think sometimes it gets twisted in many different ways, but one of the, one of the ways is, is God told me to do this. And you're like, really? And sometimes I think it's just wishful thinking. Uh, when I was younger, I was a guide up at a camp up in the San Juan Mountains, and there was this girl that came from Texas, and I liked her. She was cute. And so I, I remember just like praying and I don't recommend this, by the way. Going through Scripture, trying to find something that was saying, like, she was the one. Nope. And it was that idea. Now, some of you, maybe you had a guy, ladies, I'll just talk to the ladies. Maybe you had a guy say to you, 
God told me you're supposed to, I'm supposed to marry you. And you're like, I don't think so. And that is the correct answer. You can say, well, he better tell me too, right? And somebody said that to me like, bro, God told me I was supposed to marry her. I'm like, dude, you are not Tim Tebow. I don't think Miss Universe is going to marry you. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think you heard wrong. Right? And sometimes I think it's literally, it's not a bad heart. It's just wishful thinking. That people hear what they want to and interpret it to say God's doing it. Sometimes it's, it's just plain manipulation though, isn't it? People try to manipulate others and use this excuse of God told me this because it's really hard to respond to that, isn't it? Well, what do I say? Sometimes, often, it's manipulation. Sometimes it's just plain and clear violation of the Scripture. It's like God told me to do this thing. It's like, well, God wouldn't tell you to do something that's opposite to his word. I had a, years ago, um, some family friends, and, and she said, I feel like, God told me to divorce this guy, and there wasn't like major stuff going on that it's like, I just don't see that. I don't see that, right? I don't think that's what Scripture is, is saying, and I don't think God's telling you to do something that is opposite of what Scripture says in this specific situation. Not all situations, but in this specific situation, right? And so sometimes that God told me, is a loophole people use to justify what they want to do that they know maybe they, isn't really what God's calling them to do and put God's stamp on something. The other one is, I call it the grace loophole. The grace loophole. And there's this great scripture. It's such a comforting scripture. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. How many of you has that scripture been such a comfort to you in your life? You can, it has for me, right? Isn't that? Because we all fall. We all stumble. We all sin. And to know that, that when we come to God with a heart of repentance, he forgives us. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? But many times this verse gets used as a loophole to somehow, like the Pharisees did, to basically go, hmm, well, this is cool. This means I can kind of do whatever I want, and as long as I really quick come back and go, God, for you forgive me, God has to forgive me. So I'm just going to come over here. It's Friday night, and I'm going to do this thing that I want to do, but don't worry. Sunday morning, I'll be right back. Actually, I'll, I'll be there like at 1 in the morning. I'll be back asking quick just real quick, you know? And very soon, this kind of thinking can become like a game we play with God, right? In fact, you've probably seen like, you know, the gangster movies like, you know, The Godfather or something, you know what I mean? Something like that, right? Where the gangster mafia guy is in the confessional booth. He's not planning on changing. He's not there to confess, I mean, he's there to confess his sins, but it's, it's not like I'm here because I'm repentant and I'm going to change my ways. He's just there to empty his sin bucket so he can go back up and fill it out, or go back out and fill it up, right? Some of you have had experiences like that. Some of you, maybe you grew up in, you know, in, in the Catholic Church and that was sort of your mode of operation. You never thought of it that way. In an evangelical world, we just pray a prayer, right? That's our mode of operation around this. 
And for so many times, it can become a ritual of thinking, huh, I have this great little loophole now. And here's the thing, that is an abuse of grace. That is an abuse of grace. And it's very, very dangerous ground to walk on if you're a follower of Jesus. Paul says this in Romans. He says, so, okay, so if, if you know, when we sin, grace covers it, um, why, shouldn't we just go out and sin a whole bunch so that there's so much more grace? And he goes, may it never be. In other words, you've missed the whole point. You remember, you respond to God out of trust, and that's expressed in your life through loyal love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, right? It's an expression of, of love for him. And too many people use this idea of grace as a loophole. I'm justifying this thing because I know God has to forgive me. I know how God feels about this. But I can just come back and ask for forgiveness. I know what scripture says about this, but I'm just going to do it anyway. And God has to forgive me. It's very dangerous ground. The third loophole is this, that Jesus wants me to be happy loophole. And I think this is one I see so much in today's society. Jesus wants me to be happy. You know, because there's some verses and, you know, I can quote a verse here or there. You know, here, here's the truth. God is interested in your joy. He is. He's for your joy. Your ultimate joy. And sometimes your short-term happiness is in opposition to your ultimate joy. If you're a parent, you know this. You've had these conversations with your kids, right? Honey, I, I just, I know you really like this guy right now, but you're only 11 and... <laughs> right? And I, I don't think, ultimately, it's, it's leading you towards the path of joy. You've had those conversations, haven't you? But here's, here's what we do. It's like, I, God wants me to be happy. And here's how this, we twist this sometimes to justify what we want to do and be in the name of God. I know what I should do, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to justify to others that God must be okay with this because God wouldn't want me to be unhappy and this makes me happy, right? So I'm going to stay in that relationship. I'm just going to go ahead and stay in that relationship. I'm going to marry the guy. I, don't, I know he doesn't have share my faith and... You know, we can't pray together. Let me just tell you, ultimately, you are working in opposition to your joy long term. Let me just speak to single ladies in the room right now. If you go down that road, you are working in opposition to your joy. And using the excuse of, uh, using the excuse of God wants me to be happy. It's just a way to justify it. And to justify it is just a lie, right? I'm going to justify this habit. I'm going to justify this lifestyle. I'm going to justify this unwise choice, even though I know clearly what Scripture says, because God wouldn't want me to not be happy, because this just feels like part of who I am. God is for your joy, but sometimes your happiness can lead you astray. And I think when we use any one of these things, it's, it's really it's misusing God's name and God's character for our own purposes. 
And here's the thing. You can do this in your Christian walk. You can go down this road. But if you do, here's what will happen. You will end up missing out on the relationship that God wants to have with you. You will end up spending weeks, months, or years feeling like you're just sort of existing with God, like your prayers bounce off the wall and bounce off the ceiling, right? Like it's, it's just going nowhere. You will miss out on an intimate, deep, growing relationship with God. And we don't want you to do that. You know, I, I, I think this is true because if you look at the Pharisees, the very ones whose job it was to recognize the Messiah they'd been waiting for hundreds of years. The very ones whose job it was to recognize the Messiah not only didn't recognize him, they went on to crucify him. And they missed out on what God had for them. And for you and for me, if you continue to use spiritual-sounding excuses to avoid the clear thing that you know God wants you to do, you will miss the thing he most wants for you. And that's a close personal relationship with him, a growing relationship with your Savior. So right up front, God gives us this command in Exodus 20, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Would you stand? As we close today, I just want to leave you with a simple question to, to think about. And that's this. What, what are you justifying? What are you justifying? Is there something in your life that you know that God doesn't have for you, but you're using a spiritual-sounding excuse to go your own way on it? Are you talking yourself into something under the guise that God wants you to be happy? If you are, know that you're very likely working against your own joy in the long term. Are there things you know that God doesn't want me to go there to do that? And I know that in my heart, but I figured out a clever loophole. As long as you avoid God's will, his, his commands, the, the, his desires for you in your moral life, his desires for you when it comes to living in relationship to your stuff, your finances, right? The thing that God's pressing on your heart. As long as you keep doing that and justifying it in the name of some spiritual sounding excuse, you're going to miss out on a deep, growing relationship with him. You won't experience really walking with him. You won't experience the joy of really knowing him. And you'll always feel like an outsider when it comes to relating with him. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. As God answers this question, as the Holy Spirit brings something to mind maybe in your life right now, in that area, the area you're justifying, would you just get honest with God and yourself? I think that's so important. Like, don't deceive yourself. That doesn't make any sense. You can't deceive God. But would you just get honest? When you say, I'm going I'm to quit playing games around this. I'm going to quit pretending. Would you pray and tell God, I'm, I'm not going to justify this anymore? And and. Here's the thing, even if I still really struggle in this area repeatedly, or even if I'm not quite ready to give this up, I'm not going to justify it and pretend it's okay. It's such a vital step. Because there's things you will continue to struggle with. But to get real honest with it, 
I think, invites God the oppo- to have the opportunity to really begin to move in your heart. In fact, a good baby step could be even in this area to say, I'm not ready to surrender, but God, I give you permission to begin to change my heart in this area by the power of your Holy Spirit. I'm going to quit pretending because I don't want to miss you. As we close in prayer, would you just commit to God and in your heart to do the thing he's asking you to do? Let's pray. And I just want to give you a moment in the quietness of your heart to to talk to God for a moment. And then I'll close. Father, I want to say thank you so much for each person here. I ask you to very clearly show them how this applies. Lord, I just ask that you would give each one the ability to put into practice what you're calling them and take the step you're calling them to take, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. Lord, we love you. We lift your name up. We worship you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.